I'm Margie Byrne, and um, I'm the Assistant Director-General responsible for Australian Collections and Reader Services. Um, and in that capacity, I'm responsible for many of the National Library's medieval manuscripts, which, of course, are nothing to do with Australian collections, but just the way they end up with us. So it's a privilege and a pleasure for me to introduce tonight's lecture by Emerita Professor Michelle Brown. And this is a time, I think, uh, for reflecting on the centuries of our shared European cultural heritage, because, of course, we're in the middle of thinking about the 21st century meaning of Magna Carta, um, especially as we have an Australian um, copy of the Inspectionist copy of Magna Carta here in Canberra. But I want um, to say that as we find ourselves in this time, can we also stop and reflect for a moment that we're privileged to live among the custodians of the world's oldest living culture. And so let's, as we celebrate European culture this week and this night, let's also acknowledge the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people their ancestors, their elders, and their children. You know, thinking about all those kids playing with swords and crowns. Um, our Indigenous children are the next generations in whom we all and they hold such hope. So acknowledging the past and present, as we can do in Canberra, I can walk from my home to Mount Majura and literally we can stumble across flint tools if we have the eyes to, to see them. Acknowledgement of Indigenous people and country is important. Reconciliation matters and it matters to me. And so let's celebrate tonight our ancient histories, the living cultures across the centuries in this land we now share and also in the lands that we come from who are here tonight. Before I introduce Michelle, I want to give some thanks to just set the scene for her lecture. She would not be here tonight were it not for the generosity of National Library donors. And no doubt many of you are in the audience. Because this time last year we had our tax time appeal for a medieval manuscripts project. And you donated over $125,000. And that's enabled an eight-month special project to research the history of the 12 volumes and the 250 individual manuscript items, medieval manuscript items, held by the National Library, some 6,000 pages and leaves and fragments in all. And we've used that money to preserve and digitise them, to improve their online description in our catalogue and in, our, in finding aids, and to share them with Australians and the world through these, the magic of the online world that we now live in. And we really will be sharing with them with the world. We've discovered that we have many things that are of really qu quite interest um, to European centres in Portugal, in the UK, in Germany. Um, so it's been wonderful. And you can see a small selection of the library's medieval manuscripts in the Treasures Gallery, which are, I think, a lovely backdrop to the very beautiful star of the show, which is the Rothschild Prayer Book. So this donor-funded project was stimulated by an earlier two-day visit that Michelle made to the National Library in 2013, which was um, us just taking advantage of her being in Australia for other academic work. And <laughs> at the height of summer, rather than the middle of winter, she gave a, a spellbinding <laughs> public lecture in this theatre to a capacity audience. But more importantly um, for me... Uh, she worked intensively with um, library staff over two, the two days that she was here, giving us new insights into the significance of what had previously been a somewhat neglected collection, at least in recent times. So uh, thanks to the generosity of the donors to last year's Tax Time Appeal, we have Michelle back with us, this time for two weeks, and we're working her just as hard. <laughs> um, but thanks to her generosity, we're fortunate, again, uh, to be able to offer another public lecture tonight. She's also giving a public masterclass, she's meeting donors, she's working again with library staff during her visit to develop our knowledge about our medieval manuscript collection and to help us to understand it and, and know it better and take even better care of it into the future. So keep that in mind, particularly those of you who were donors, as you enjoy um, what Michelle has to tell us tonight. 
If I can now segue back into what is normally expected of an introduction to a distinguished speaker, I, I do think Michelle is really loving being back in a national library. She worked for many years in the British Library as curator of illuminated manuscripts before taking up um, her position, her most recent position as Professor of Medieval Manuscript Studies in the School of Advanced Studies at the University of London. Her personal bibliography runs to 12 pages, including major publications on the Luttrell Psalter, the Lindisfarne Gospels and the Holcomb Bible. She's made many broadcast contributions to radio and TV programs. But there are some lesser-known facts about her which I can share. She's the devoted owner of two Serbian rescue dogs called Stalin and Lenin, which <laughs> we find very um, entertaining, and we've seen the pictures. And uh, she's restoring a 16th-century Cornish farmhouse, which comes with its own well, and she published her first novel last year. So she's not only expert, but she's very, very interesting and a joy to have with us again. And, and we're very grateful that um, Michelle has returned to Australia and we will enjoy her lecture tonight. So please welcome Emerita Professor Michelle Brown. It is indeed wonderful to be back. I'm having the best time. And um, tonight we actually get to linger over some cheese and wine. Do you remember those of you who were here last time when the library was closing and we had a little sort of get-together on the front steps? which was fun. So I hope to have a bit more time to, to chat to a few of you tonight afterwards. Um, yeah, one of the things that I did when I was here last time was actually um, push back some of the parameters to find that we now here have the oldest um, surviving manuscript in Australia, which is a 10th century Anglo-Saxon piece, which is on display next to the Rothschild prayer book. And it's interesting that we can tell as much about um, 10th century Canterbury from things that are outside of the country, including here, as we can from things that are still in the UK. So the diaspora of materials as well as people that mixes it up, matches it up internationally, I think is quite an exciting thing. But what I'm here to talk to you about tonight is Australia's newest ancient treasure, <laughs> the Rothschild Prayer Book. And what I want to do with you tonight is bring it alive and actually get you thinking about some of the ways in which it functioned to set it within the context of those who made it and also the world around 1500, one of those great periods of transformation in Western culture when we tip over from the late Middle Ages into the early modern world. So we're going to embark on a real voyage of discovery with this one. But although I'm going to be here mediating it for you, what I want you to start thinking about with medieval manuscripts of this sort is that these are performative works and the relationship between word, sound and image is a very interesting and complex one which the medievals had explored to the nth degree and some of which gets put on a bit of a back burner with the advent of print in which gradually for a while some of the colour drains out <laughs> of the page and the beginnings of electronic communication when we very much import book culture into the electronic environment which is now giving way to a far more interactive environment in which again we can explore the orality as well as the meaning of images as well as the core texts that link us together as communities of reading and what you have to bear in mind in in this period um, as well as in our own um, to be literate was really to be well read for example, if you were to talk to Bede in um, early 8th century Northumbria, he would say that to be literate was to be literate in Latin, well-read in the Bible, the patristics and whatever classics you could get your hands on. If I were to say to you guys now, do you know the works of Jane Austen? Pride and Prejudice. How many of you have read it in the original first edition? How many of you know it from Sex on a Stick, Colin Firth, coming out of a lake <laughs> in a damp shirt? 
Now, we've all got a buy-in to a shared community of reading on that, but people's way of accessing it can be very, very different. For many people now, as then, the moving image and the sound were very much the ways in which you access things through drama, the mystery plays, etc., through the great doom paintings that you saw on the walls of churches or the portals with all the terrifying demons and the gorgeous, sinuous angels. And, you know, the whole thing is very, very vibrant. And the way in which you pass stories on from generation to generation, very well disciplined. When you tell your kids a bedtime story... And you try and go off piste or you've had a hard day and you can't quite remember the the right pattern of the words. How quick are they to pick you up? And so um, for many people who would congregate around books, their, their access to the written text, the books mean an awful lot more than the text itself. And the images are ways of actually getting deeper sorry, into the heart of the text and taking off the layers of the onion. And you would also need a fair bit of intertextuality. So that if, for example, you're looking at a book like this and you see an image of the Annunciation to the Virgin or, let's say, the Crucifixion, and you see in the bottom margins a porcupine, what's that doing there? Is it just to amuse? Well, yeah, in part, because these are your multimedia entertainment systems. In addition to getting you to partake in the beatific vision in the world to come, these are the things that women who could would teach their children to read from, and they would be entertaining as well. But they would be morally edifying too. And so your intertextuality, your familiarity with other things, such as the medieval bestiary, would tell you that a porcupine symbolises the crucified Christ. Because, of course, any child knows that when it rolls over, it picks up all the rotten apples on its quills, just as Christ picks up everybody's sins at the crucifixion. Okay? So it's a rich, interconnected world of communication with words to be seen and images to be read okay so let's explore some of this so what can we say about the book well we think that it was the part of the last flowering of a great school of illuminators during the late middle ages based in the flemish towns of ghent and bruges and made around 1500 to 1520 Now, it's by quite um, a very accomplished team of leading artists of the day, some of them anonymous, some of them um, well-known through their colophons and even through portraits, as we'll see. It included one who's not known other than um, for some of his key works, the master of the first prayer book of Maximilian. Um, And we've also got another one, the master of James IV of Scotland, who we think was Gerard Horenboot. Now, these are taking their names master of from some of their key works um, who are associated with patrons, such as James IV of Scotland. Then we've got Gerard David, who was a leading panel painter as well as an illuminator, and likewise Simon Benning. Okay. Now... This team seemed to have worked together on a number of projects and they're all leading lights in the scene of the time. It would be like imagining, imagine you were going to um, order an incredible wedding dress or, I don't know, some incredible thing from leading designers of the day. It was like saying, well, I want um, the undergarment by Armani, but I want Gucci to do the overgarment, and I want the over-sewing and the um, postmodernist twists by Steve, um, Alexander McQueen. I got the right McQueen? Yeah. <laughs> OK. Um, so, you know, somebody has really gone to trouble to put together and pay for the leading illuminators of their day. But interestingly enough, the patron of this remarkable and incredibly opulent book um, is anonymous. Now, many of the really deluxe books of this period will have some clues to the patron, either their mottos, their emblems, their coats of arms, or something of that sort insinuated into the designs. We don't know. Of course, at this period, the merchant bankers and others were vying with the traditional aristocracy and nobles and royalty to have equally impressive commissions. And a book of this sort would be the equivalent of one or two years' salary 
for a high earner. So you could either have a new house on the canals of Ghent and Bruges, you could have a shiny new barge in which to navigate and trade on them, or you could have a book of hours. This one's a prayer book. It's actually technically a book of hours, but it's called a prayer book in this case because there are several prayer, um, books of hours in the Rothschild collection, and this is to signal this one out. So let's look a little bit at its provenance and what we know about its life history, where it went after it was made, who it met, and to interrogate it a little bit about its um, biography. Now, the book is a book of hours. I'll tell you more about that in a moment. But it's also got some extra mass texts and prayers beyond the things that are normally found. And those distinctive elements relate it to a monastic house called the Chartreuse des Dunes near Bruges. Have any of you ever drunk Chartreuse? green chartreuse. Well, the Chartreusians um, brewed a particularly fine liqueur. Um, and they had houses um, in, in um, Flanders especially that would attract uh, a lot of retired um, men and women, widows for example, to actually move in and, and um, pursue a, a clo- cloistered vocation um, often later in their life. So perhaps the connection here might be something of that sort. By 1500, of course, um, deluxe handmade books of this sort were beginning to be supplanted by printed books of hours, which had a lot of imagery, but again, not much colour unless you paid somebody to literally colour in the woodblock um, ornaments. Uh, So it's a conscious decision to, if you like, to look back and to go high-end, high-spec and to venture into the world of fine art patronage as well as commissioning a working devotional book. We know that the manuscript belonged to the princely family of Wittelsbach in the 16th century, so they obviously saw it as high status enough to, um, to wish to acquire it. And then the Count's Palatine in Heidelberg... We then know nothing about it from 1623 until it reappears in the collection of the Viennese banking family, um, branch of the banking family, the Rothschilds, in the late 19th century. And, of course, in 1938, with the German annexation of Austria, it was confiscated from the Rothschilds and passed to the National Library of Austria who, in 1999, agreed under international agreements of Holocaust repatriation, um, which all major libraries and and, um, cultural institutions undertook to uh, restore the volume to the Rothschilds, who promptly sold it at Christie's for um, what was then a record amount for any illuminated manuscripts, 13 million um, US dollars. A lot of money. And again, recently, in um, 2014, it was sold for uh, over £8 million to the Australian media magnate Kerry Stokes in Perth. And, of course, this is the first outing for the book to be displayed here in Australia in our library, which is wonderful. OK, so what's a book of hours? Well, Christopher de Hamel, the wonderful, wonderful and very, very plummy Kiwi, um, uh, curator of manuscripts at Corpus Christi College, Cambridge, and Doyen of Sotheby's, um, used to pride himself on uh, any manuscript that's brought into Sotheby's for opinion. He would be able to tell before the little brown paper parcel was opened what the book was from its size, etc. It didn't always work. Um, and he liked to say that one day um, a London black cab driver came into Sotheby's and he was called down to look at this little parcel. And before he opened it, he said, oh, this is very simple, my man. It's a book of hours. To which the cabbie replied, no, it ain't, mate. It belongs to me. <laughs> but anyway, we're talking hours, not hours. And the hours in question are the monastic hours of the divine office, the eight times of every day and night, um, the hours of um, Matins, Lords, Prime, Terse, Sext, Known, Compline and Vespers, at which members of the monastic orders would go into the church or chapel and recite prayers, psalms and the divine office. Now, from the mid-13th century onwards, it was a time of great sort of social upheaval and unrest. The Mongols, for example, were beginning to threaten the borders, and lay people wanted to engage in similarly rigorous devotions. And so they started having books of hours in an abbreviated form produced for their own domestic 
use. If you were particularly devout, you might say your whole book of hours during the course of a year. Okay. Some people, however, really were the hard men and women and would do it in a week. They can't have had time for an awful lot else. Um, and the degrees of money that you could spend on it were, were sort of depending on, on your status, how um, much perhaps that meant to you devotionally, but also the fact that you would be seen in your public observance often carrying these books, which often had beautiful um, tooled bindings and chemises to match ladies' frocks, etc. Um, and you would be seen in church using them, as well as, I said, using them um, for other purposes, including education. And so, you know, you could really spend as much as you chose on them. And by this period, from around about 1200 onwards, you'd moved um, outside of the world of monastic scriptoria, primarily producing such books, into the world of the urban subcontracted specialist. So if you're commissioning a book of this sort, you would go along to your favourite stationer in whichever town you had access to, and over a lot of the equivalent of mint tea, Malmsey wine or whatever, I guess, you would, um, he, would, he or she would plumb the depth of your purse very subtly and work out whether they could sting you for full-page miniatures at all the appropriate places, whether you would want um, individual miniatures or initials showing all of your favourite saints in the calendar and the litany, etc. And so you might make decisions, for example, if you're um, commissioning such a book for a betrothal, or marriage, uh, you might want, obviously, to include St. Margaret of Egypt and St. Catherine, who are the patronesses who will get you safely through childbirth, for example. If your confessor happens to be from any of the individual orders, a Dominican, perhaps, or um, a Franciscan, then your choice of saints will allude again to that. Or if you've got a particular patron saint or lineup of saints for your particular hometown or family, they too will be, make their way in. So there's a degree of customization that's possible, as well as choosing which of the major offices you want included, the Hours of the Cross, the one that everybody wanted, the Hours of the Virgin, the Office of the Dead, because let's face it, you're going to need that at some point, um, the Hours of the Holy Spirit, and various other prayers, suffrages to different saints, all sorts of things that you could have in. So the, um, the stationers who then took your order would then subcontract the work to jobbing artists and scribes and they would um, do the work in often streets adjacent to one another and they would marry in to keep the work within the family, if you like, and to get extra men and women to work. And interestingly enough, it's only the book trades in the Middle Ages where women can um, trade independently, having inherited firms from husbands, fathers, etc. as well. So they play an equally prominent role often, as we'll see, within the production of such works. And then the stationer would have to make sure all the work was brought back together and get it all bound up and make sure everything literally stitched together well. So that's something of the process. So um, yeah, let's, let's have a little look through and, and see some of the, um, the details and how we might begin to read these. Now, the first thing that will strike you here is that you've got um, rather a saucy image of the virgin and child. She's um, suckling, and uh, there's perhaps a little bit more information there than um, might usually be uh, included. And she's appearing in a vision to, um, to St. Bernard here. So um, this is about as racy uh, as, as it gets at this time. So that's, um, it's a striking devotional image, but it is very graphic. And almost as if to diffuse some of that um, exuberance, you can see that the whole is contained within a very restrained, super elegant um, border in which you can see statuary. So this is looking just like the sort of church architecture in Ghent and Bruges around 1500 that the patron of the book would be using the book within. And um, if you look carefully at either the reproductions online or um, the book, uh, as well as the manuscript itself, you can see that this work is immaculately produced in chrysography. So it's a mixture of techniques of working gold. You can either lay gold on as leaf over gesso, and modern calligraphers tell me that if you have one cubic square inch of gold leaf, you can gild a football pitch 
I've yet to see any of them do it. I must challenge them on that one day. Um, or you can powder it as shell gold because you would mix it in a shell, powdered gold, with a little alum and honey, etc., to get the right mordant and texture, and lay that on um, with a, a quill pen or a brush as an ink to give you those very, very fine details. But that takes about um, uh, 25 times as much gold as um, rolling it out very finely for gold leaf. And so the amount of shell gold to achieve this very, very fine modelling makes this a very, very expensive commission indeed. And again, just to show us the, um, the level of detailing, now what we're looking at here is about... Um, oh, it's about 18 centimetres by 9 centimetres... So, again, you can see just the, the level of painterliness. And I think quite um, easily see the connection with the panel paintings of the day, people like Quentin Metzis, um, Memling and others. You've got the same level of artistry and modelling at work here. And, in fact, the panel painter's art grows out of 1,500 years of manuscript painting as well as more recent Italianate fresco work as well. <clears throat> now, this is a particularly beautiful um, image, and it gives you an idea of the user of the book and how it would have appeared when it was actually um, first being used with probably a chemise binding um, uh, rather than the one that we see now. Um, it's like the, the equivalent of a dust jacket, if you like. But um, sometimes they could be of simple uh, homespun or um, alum tooled sheepskin, but often they were very, very elaborate textiles, as you see here. Um, now, this is St. Helena, who was the mother of Constantine the Great, who was the first Roman emperor to um, formally uh, embrace Christianity and to issue edicts of toleration to all religions, including Christianity, in the early 4th um, century. And she was an amateur archaeologist who went on a tour of the Holy Land, and wherever her native guides told her to dig, she would dig, and lo and behold, she found wonderful things like the true cross um, <laughs> it must have been a very very large cross if the number of fragments that then circulated throughout the middle ages is to be believed um, and she's wearing the sort of opulent fabrics that um, uh, are known from um, Burgundy and the Spanish Netherlands at this sort of period and around again on one of these beautiful shell gold um, borders. We've got what we call a strew border, which is um, like that phase in ancient Roman art when they like things to be incredibly, incredibly, almost photographic in their verism and naturalism. And the interest very much is in the flora and fauna, which are being increasingly studied in a university environment in the 14th and 15th centuries. And, of course, with the opening up of trade after Marco Polo's voyages and others with um, areas beyond the eastern Mediterranean, uh, again, a great interest in the exotic plants, for example, that were coming in. And from the 14th century onwards, the palette of earlier medieval illumination explodes into a wealth of new exotica, such as Brazil woods, not from Brazil in South America, but from um, the Orient, um, and a whole range of different colours that are adopted by the textile industry. Saffron, Saffron Warden in England, which made its living from crocus stamen dyes, for example. So a whole range of new vegetable dyes and also um, artificially manufactured colours, such as a whole range of acidic copper blues which are being manufactured through advances in um, uh, the scientific elements of the university syllabus. Um, and again, the whole um, spectrum is imbued with deep imagery. Each flower, each animal, each insect, each um, gemstone that we'll see depicted, all imbued with, um, like the medieval bestiary, with deep, deep, deep moral significance. So here, for example, you've got a peacock whose flesh is thought never to putrefy. And so it becomes a symbol of the resurrection. And also, interestingly in England, the symbol of queenliness. And so it's sort of doubly appropriate with Helena finding the cross, the resurrection that's implicit within it, and also her own um, status, royal status. And then you have the red and white roses, symbol of the virgin and of virginity. Um, 
And here you've got the snail. And again, our intertextual reading of the bestiary would tell us that the snail is the symbol of humility because it draws in its antennae when faced with righteous authority. Um, the one I'm not too... Well, the, the fly... Well, what's the fly going to say to you? Again, that's death. Okay. With the, so you've got the death on the cross and the resurrection to come. And the virginity through the incarnation, through the virgin, and also Helena's own sort of born-again virginal status through discovering the cross. The thing I'm not too sure about, and there's always a mystery to be pursued in these things, is the donkey, which um, resembles both, obviously, the donkey of the nativity, but also the donkey that the virgin is normally shown on fleeing Egypt. But here it's got two little um, black babies... Or um, some, yeah, I think that they are babies rather than little apes. You also see sometimes aping the um, actions of mankind, but I think these are actual children. So two little children in a pannier. Now, that's unusual. So there's probably a little bit more work to be done um, to decipher that. Now, here you can see um, St. Jerome engaged in writing his Vulgate Latin translation of the Bible in the 4th century. But you can see he's doing it not in 4th century um, Holy Land, but in Ghent or Bruges, in the sort of church um, and monastic enclave that the book was probably used in. Um, And you certainly wouldn't be sitting outside writing in a ready-made book if you were a scribe of this period, as we'll see in a moment. And again, look at all of the gemstones and the way in which these flowers look more like um, enamelled brooches, don't they? So again, similar um, symbolism with the rose, etc. There are an awful lot of pearls um, in this particular volume and lots of rubies. And again, that might well say something about the patron. I'm sure some of you remember, we don't do it so much now, but you remember it used to be the thing that you had a birth gemstone. Yeah, it's that sort of thing. People would have a patron saint, um, a gemstone that was peculiar to either that saint or the month they were born in, the star sign, all of those sort of symbolisms implicit. And note the um, the little flower, the, the viola, which keeps cropping up in very prominent positions. Now, often these can be a play on name forms as well. Now, the actual circumstances of production would have been more like this. This is from a German gradual of about the same period, 1512, in which you can see an interesting um, conjunction. You've got uh, a a scribe still in monastic orders, because the monasteries didn't pack up the minute the town started producing, um, who's wearing his eyeglasses and is busy doing musical notation over here. While here we've got um, a secular uh, scribe, Um, and illuminator, Nicholas Birchie, with his wife Margaret, who are named in the um, little colophon underneath. And you can see Margaret's helping out by bringing him a pint of beer to encourage him in his work. And often it would be, as I say, husband and wife and family teams who would undertake work of this sort. Now, if you were really, really accomplished, people would ask for you by name. Okay, and word would get out. And one such um, lead artist is the person who did this beautiful opening, which is Gerard David. Okay, and we can track him from other works in which he actually signs his name. And if you look again at the beautiful, beautiful modelling of the Virgin here, very much related to his panel painting work. But then look again at the fun that we've got here. You've got a little husband and wife team again pushing a very heavy wheelbarrow with one of these specimen plants of the sort that are adorning the windowsills of the houses in the Netherlands and Holland at this time. So again, leading the way with the plantsmanship and bringing new species into the West. And beautiful, beautiful roses and our little viola again. And time and time again, we get the strawberry, which is the symbol of purity. Again, it's the, um, one of the fruits of the Virgin. Um, appearing with a little marguerite. So again, is there a marguerite or a viola aspect? There are quite a few women saints mentioned in the book, so perhaps um, it might well be for female use. 
And this is Gerard David's self-portrait in which he shows himself as one of the um, bystanders, if you like, in one of his panel paintings, such as this um, uh, Sarani family triptych for their chapel. And look at this gorgeous little flight into Egypt panel painting that he was responsible for. And the um, preoccupation in the Flemish Netherlands with beautifully depicted perspectival landscape that you find in both the miniatures first and then in the panel paintings. Now, the volume opens with a calendar, and this basically gives you the, um, the, the key to which saints' feast days occur on which days of the year. And I'm sure you've heard um, tell of red-letter days, and that would be that the more important of them would be written in red ink rather than text ink. In a really flashy book, you would have gold ink for the top-grade feast, then blue, then red then text ink. And so you can see that things like the Annunciation to the Virgin, um, George the Martyr, who is one of the patrons of um, Ghent, is shown there, um, the Evangelist Mark, and then um, other sort of second-tier uh, saints. And again, by looking at the, um, the ones that are more unusual within any such calendar, you can help customise it and localise it if you're lucky. Um, and then a series of illuminations that go right back to late antiquity. You'll find these in mosaic um, decorations of the 3rd and 4th century. You have signs of the zodiac, so here you've got Aries and Taurus, and underneath the labours of the months appropriate to um, March. We've got uh, a beautifully observed little urban um, garden of the period with the gardener digging up the raised beds and the um, lady of the house coming to giving instruction on what herbs, etc., she wishes to be planted. And here you can see in April um, the herdsman uh, getting the sheep ready to go out to pasture, and you know you've got the goat in amongst them, the, the parable of the sheep and goats. Um, and this is another work by the artist that probably did those uh, calendar miniatures in the Rothschild prayer book, and he's Simon Benning. And this is another calendar by him in a book in the British Library in London, and this one is known as the Golf Book, because for some of you gentlemen and ladies out there, it contains the earliest depiction of the game of golf. Oh, hang on, what am I doing now? Adam, can you get rid of that for me? Wake up, Adam. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, and here, returning to the Rothschild hours, we've got a very fine depiction of the nativity. And note that that's sort of set like a panel painting within another background image in which you've got um, Mary and Joseph arriving very, very tired at Bethlehem and being told that there's no room in the inn by the innkeeper's wife. He's hiding inside because he, he doesn't want to take the flack, if you like. And so she and the baby have been sent outside. You've got this lovely dog just lolling on the uh, thing. Uh, but, of course, they are shown to the rather ramshackle um, stable nearby. And here you can see the angel um, announcing the birth of Christ to the shepherds up on the hillside here. And picking up on that, at the opening of the office of Prime in the Hours of the Virgin, you can see this wonderful scene where the shepherds have gone out subsequently and have told everybody the wondrous tidings. And all those who are then going to be saved are having a good old knees up around the sheep to celebrate the coming of the Messiah. And um, here you've got, uh, further on in the same, of the beginning of the Office of the Virgin, where you've got the coronation of the Virgin by Father, Son and Holy Spirit, Father and Son shown as identical. Um, and underneath, this scene of three figures actually praying in a church of the period, some of them with their books of hours, and this nun with a scroll with the equivalent of this sort of Victorian hat box that scrolls would be kept in. And this beautifully observed landscape, and I love this detail here. Let's focus in on him. Um, interestingly enough, Seven Network, because, of course, Kerry Stokes, <laughs> the doyen of Seven Network. And here you see this little figure who I think in some respects is symbolising the senses 
Um, because the, the treaties on the senses and, and the way in which you access spirituality through engagement with the material world, matter matters, um, is an intriguing concept that goes right back to the Anglo-Saxon period. And you can see this little figure who's holding, I think, um, I think it's a, it might actually be a little bird. And I think the reason for that is that he's a scribe. This little leather container at his belt is what his quill pens would go in, so that might be a reference to the origin of the quill pen um, here. And look at alveola again, how prominent that is. And then what would normally be his inkhorn is used as the feeding trough or water trough for the little caged bird. And there's our strawberry again. So there are a lot of caged birds and other free birds chattering. And Chaucer, for example, refers to chattering birds symbolising gossip and spreading news. So, again, a relationship between the written word of the scribe and the oral proclamation of the word, perhaps. Um, here we've got a beautiful procession of saints of the sort that you would see going through the streets of um, uh, such towns during um, major feast days. And here you've got the Virgin in her celestial blue because the colours, again, have got lots of um, symbolism imbued within them. And just as the banners and statues, etc., are being carried here, so these two little drollery figures are making really hard work of carrying a really big blackberry around with them. So, again, the sort of fruits, if you like, of, of that sort of observance and a bit of um, fun, basic fun. And here you can see the little ape, um, the similes, as they're known in Latin, because they simulate the follies of mankind. And there he is, trying to pluck his own little flower and berry as well. Gentians, um, also in the margins there. And here onto the more um, serious side of life, which is, of course, death, and here you can see, opening the Office of the Dead, a contemporary funeral with um, a clerk figure here and a number of mourner monks who would be paid to sing souls, um, masses for the um, souls of the dead, set upon beautiful figured silk grounds of the sort that we see some of the saints decked out in for their costumes. But lest one get too uh, carried away with the panoply and the theatre of it all, of course, there's the inevitable memento mori, the three living and the three dead. So as you in your finery, etc., remembering your finery um, and the days of, of wine and roses, look at your prayer book, you're brought face to face with your own mortality, with the skulls placed in the charnel house and the scene of the burial itself. But nil desperandum, because a few pages later, we've got the resurrection. Um, and again, with beautiful delft pottery, with your plants and your vases, etc. And Christ raising from the dead, others from the dead, in a beautiful uh, side street of Ghent. It's like you think about Stanley Spencer's, you know, resurrection at Cookham, um, things like that. It's making it, it's situating yourself and your society within the um, ongoing uh, timeliness, a timelessness of, of the biblical landscape, um, and the same device that you have in Byzantine icons of gold being a sort of spiritual quantum other dimension, if you like. And look, we've got our flies there as well. Ah, uh, what have we got here? Oh, this is the beginning of the, um, the Office of the Holy Spirit, showing um, the sort of members of the congregation who would own books such as this, taking part uh, in services. And again, this little figure, um, who's rather fun, riding his horse out on business. And this is the um, opening that we've got in the exhibition at the moment, which is from the Litany and Suffrages of the Saints. And this is the Memorial of St. Stephen. 
And, um, of course, you would know that even if you didn't read the rubric. The rubrics are the bits in red from Rubaeum, which distinguish titles or instructions relating to the text from the actual text itself. Um, and then you've got a hierarchy of decorative initials, a major initial for the beginning of the prayer, and then uh, a minor initial for the next paragraph, if you like. So S for Stephanus, D for Da Nobis, give to us. And you should be able to recognise um, Stephen anyway from his attributes, because not only has he got a particularly fine and hefty um, service book under his arm, because he was a deacon of the church who would carry the Gospels in their treasure bindings for reading out of during services, but he's also got uh, a whole load of stones that he's looking at rather wistfully and offering to you. And, of course, one of them is embedded in his skull because he was martyred by stoning. And if you look carefully, um, do go and look at the, um, the actual thing in the gallery and just look at how beautifully fine, rather than having the circular nimbus of holiness, you've just got this tiny little um, radiation, emanation of energy <laughs> coming off of him with the, um, the, the shell gold. And here you've got an angel zapping St. Francis with little lights of gold um, with the stigmata. And what have we got in the margins? Very ostentatious and beautiful peacock feathers. Again, for um, eternal life. And our little viola, yet again. And here the commemoration of St. Thomas... And I love this detail. You've got, you know, um, they used to have the thing about, or still do, about the, um, the canals freezing over and everybody going skating on them. You can see them in Bruegel paintings. And here we've got um, two little grotesques taking advantage of the fact that it's not quite frozen over yet, but it's getting there. And so you've got one of them in full armour, a sort of merman in full armour, and the other one perching um, on a little phoenix, um, wild men the men of the forest, the symbols of otherness and the chaos that lurks outside on the margins. And, of course, Thomas being famous for what? Doubting. So, again, chaos that comes through um, allowing yourself to be tempted too far down the paths of uncertainty rather than dwelling in a Keatsian uncertainty, which is probably a different thing altogether. Um, and here we see St. Catherine, again, patroness of those going into childbirth, Catherine of Sinai. And she's uh, got her own lovely little book of hours with chemise and her bodice embroidered with pearls and the sort of figured silks that we saw on some of the backgrounds earlier. And little snails leaving little um, illuminated trails of humility all over the place. <laughs> and here... Susanna and the elders. Now, it's amazing how risque a bare ankle <laughs> could be, even up until including the Victorian period. And um, you can see Susanna just going for a little early morning dip. Um, and these rather sinister figures, and the most sinister of all is this one whose face you can't even see. You just see this incredibly vibrant mass of his body in his orange drapery. And these are the elders who spy on Susanna, and because they're um, afraid of their own lust being um, found out, uh, try to sacrifice her. And opposite, you can see St. Veronica holding the, um, the, the cloth that she wiped Christ's face with on his way to the crucifixion. And all of our pearls, again... Now, a little bit varying away from the book itself into the background. Now, this is William de Brailles, and we know that because he's written in the margins in French, a Latin book, but W. de Brailles, qui me dépeint. William de Brailles, who painted me. And here he is with the hand of God lovingly stroking his cheek. <laughs> Beloved son. And he's a clerk in minor orders. You can see that because he's got the um, corona tonsure. Okay? But we know from um, a, lot, a lot of people would enter minor orders, especially if they were involved in the book arts. Um, so they were like tertiaries, but they were still married. He had a wife, Selina, who ran his illuminator's business with him in Cat Street in Oxford. 
which is here, just uh, beside the Bodleian and the Sheldonian Theatre. You can still go there and walk in the, in the footsteps of William de Brailles and Selina, who owned a lot of property um, around the area, which is why we know a bit about them, because the legal uh, documents about their transactions survive. Um, and the Rouses have done an awful lot of work on profiling the book trade in medieval Paris from the documents that were generated by the book um, fraternity. And William de Brailles illuminated the first book of hours, this one, around the 1240s in Oxford, the de Brailles hours. Um, the sort of environment of places like Paris and Oxford, the book trade was very much fuelled by the university and its demands for provision of set syllabus books and that obviously means that you get a, 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 an intensity of book trade workers, but you're also working for high-level patrons, courtly patrons and others, on all sorts of other texts as well as university texts. But these little pocket Bibles um, are, are amongst the most prolific product, products of such university centres, and everybody who graduated from the theology tripos will be given one to take out for preaching with them. And again, we're fortunate enough to have a couple of those in the collection here. I think one of those is on display um, in the gallery next to the Rothschild Hours. And it's amazing that how suddenly in the 13th century, with this radical transformation of book production, you could get a Bible that previously, a single-volume Bible, would be something that six people would need to hold and lift up. But by dint of writing them on very, very fine split sheepskins, where you could get two, skin, two pages out of um, one split sheepskin and then fold it into um, eight uh, an octavo to get a little volume. Um, you, you would find that um, you could then write with a crow quill very, very finely and use lots of abbreviations and shorthand symbols. And you could condense it into the sort of a for format that we have in Gideon Bibles and NIVs, etc. today. Um, and that's the 13th century one. Now, sometimes the relationships between the scribes and artists who worked in different roads, etc., wasn't always quite so congenial. Here you can see the scribe has done his best, and often they would be rushed jobs, um, but the artist has noticed that, oh, he's gone and left a whole line and a half out there. <laughs> and he's written it in the margins, and that looks awful, and I'm not going to cover his tracks, so I'm going to draw attention to it in the worst way possible. I'm going to point to where it should be. I'm going to haul those words up on a rope and I'm going to step on the scribe in the process. Um, thinking about modern day scribes and of course other traditions, um, the Islamic and the Judaic traditions obviously um, producing illuminated manuscripts as well, even if not focusing on figural um, ornament within sacred texts. Um, and here you find uh, a menorah from a Spanish um, Hebrew Bible of the 14th century. And here you find a similar menorah in the St. John's Bible, which was made um, in the 1990s for the Hill Monastic Library at St. John's, Minnesota, by um, the leading calligrapher from England, um, Donald Jackson, and his scriptorium. And here you can see him working at the Hendra near Monmouth, and this is a quote from him, um, not a particularly uh, religious man, when we pinned him to actually say how he felt when he was producing this work. He said, when I was a nine-year-old, desire led me to copy ancient scripts and decorated letters. I loved the feel of the pen as it touched the page and the breathtaking effect of coloured ink as its wetness caught the light. Those sensations, which I still experience as I work, think of our scribe with the senses, smelling, listening, touching, are what seem to direct the shapes and colours of my designs and letters. The quill and the brush, not my conscious thinking, make the choice. The continual process of opening up and accepting what may reveal itself through hand and heart on a crafted page is the closest I have ever come to God. And that from a modern secularist. Interesting to think what the different experiences in the Middle Ages will be. And here he is. I showed him Bibles of all different periods in the British Library. And we worked to find what were the best sort of um, scripts and idiom for producing. And then for the artwork, of course, he wanted to situate his society and environment and styles in a similar way as the medievals had. And so here, the crucifixion in stunning gold leaf is done in a very sort of abstract form. 
And this is what a book looks like when you're working on it. It's not nicely bound until all the work is finished and brought back to the stationer. The scribes normally do the layout, do the art, um, do the scribal work. The rubricator comes in, does the rubrics. And then the spaces that are left, um, decorators put in the uh, initials, the minor pen-flourished initials. You would have people who spend all day every day just doing red and blue flourishing, red and blue flourishing, red and blue flourishing, or laying on disembodied bits of gold leaf onto very faintly drawn designs that would then pass to the colourists for full illumination. While for some of the really, really glitzy full-page miniatures, they might be done separately by a high-class illuminator and their team. And so this is what it looks like when you bring it all back together. And this is his scriptorium. The young girl here was 18 at that time. This chap was 64. Now, you'll hear a lot of psychopaleography. It used to be said, oh, it's clumsy, it must have been nun's work. <laughs> well, we now know that some of the most stunning things of the Middle Ages were by women. Um, or that, oh, he's old, he's got a tremulous hand, etc. Um, beware, I, this is a pastiche of their different scripts, and they'd all schooled themselves to write a house style. And professional scribes then and now will write many different types of scripts. So tracking their hands can be difficult. I, I challenge you to tell me which is the 18-year-old 18, 18 girl and which is the 64-year-old man. And this is Ghent, just to situate us. And the sort of background that these artists would have grown out of would be seeing beautiful works such as the Ghent altarpiece by the Van Eycks. Um, Individuals such as Edward IV of England would go to Ghent and Bruges to buy some of their key works. This is a beautiful copy of Vincent de Beauvais' Speculum. You would hold up human history to you to reflect your own identity and that of your society. And the magnifying glass that you see here would do the same. So it's a symbolism there. And this is the um, author at work in his study. Now, this is a book that was made for off-the-peg sale on spec by a Ghent Bruges stationer. And spaces were left for the coats of arms, and he hit jackpot because he got a king who must have paid top dollar, and so the arms of England were added in the workshop once the king had made his purchase. And this is a gorgeous piece. This is by the same team as the Rothschild prayer book. So somebody liked the lineup, or they liked working together and replicated it across a couple of works. And this stunning edifice is the Tower of Babel being constructed, made for the Grimani um, banking family of Venice. And these are from the calendar, where a calendar is given full-page miniatures of the labours of the month. So the peasant and his wife keeping warm inside their house and in spring, um, the courtly love scenes of life in the field for the nobles. And this is another stunning um, miniature of the arrest of Christ by Simon Benning for a, a book of hours made for Cardinal Albrecht of Brandenburg, now in the Getty. And look at the ways in which the faces of the, um, the captors are sort of given exaggerated facial features. And another set of miniatures um, for calendars by Benning now in the V&A with the labours of the months. Now, this is a good corollary. This is Clifford Manuscript 9 from the collections here, made in Ghent Bruges um, only about 30 or 40 years before the book that we're looking at. Now, it's not just that we've moved a little later. This is the sort of book that, as, you know, not doing too badly burgers, we might aspire to if we saved up all our lives. <laughs> and note the way in which Christ's um, head has been rubbed as a devotional act. And Eamon Duffy has written a marvellous book called Marking the Hours, which actually looks at the signs of use and wear in such books to see how they were actually used. And this is um, a second-hand book of hours that was owned by Richard III and was probably the one that accompanied him to Bosworth, the Battle of Bosworth, in 1485. It may be that um, it had a family association or something. He liked his mother's books particularly. This one had been commissioned in London in the 1420s. And we know from people like the household inventories of John Duke of Bedford in the early 15th century that he had seven or eight 
books of hours and sorters. And he would keep some in individual houses, some he would take on campaign with him. Um, and so there were you know, different horses for courses, if you like. This one is lovely. This is the Hours of Mary in Burgundy, made in a similar area to ours in 1477. And I love the spatial play here. You've got Mary, who's the daughter of Charles the Bold, um, reading the book that we're looking at in its chemise binding with her rosary beads and her little dog symbolising fidelity, and looking through the open window at herself being presented to the virgin and child in eternity through the process of meditative reading of her prayers. And here, to show the interaction between the Northern Renaissance and the Italian Renaissance, this is a beautiful book of hours made for Bona Sforza, the Duchess of Milan, in the 1490s. And this was made by leading court illuminator Giovanni Pietro Birago. And look how the young men are... Oh, God, they're sexy, aren't they? They're wearing up-to-the-minute sort of clothing from Milan haute couture at the day and looking very much like some of the, um, the artworks that were familiar from the young Leonardo for example, and his master. Um, Now, the book was stolen by a priest while it was being worked on and subsequently retrieved, and the amount paid, the insurance valuation, if you like, was a king's ransom, um, even though it was incomplete. And it was bequeathed by Bona to one of her relatives, Margaret, regent of um, Austria, and she had it completed in Ghent and Bruges um, around the 1510, 1520 mark uh, by um, uh, Gerard Hohenboot, who's one of our artists in the Rothschild prayer book. And so here you can see Hohenboot from the Gothic North responding with his putty and jewels, etc., to the sort of work that he's seeing in um, the Milanese work. And also commissioned by the Sforza family at about the same time, Leonardo's famous Last Supper. And, of course, his experiments with pigments in the fresco orbit, um, not as accomplished, obviously, as the centuries of tradition of handling pigments in manuscript illumination. Um, but just to set the scene for us again to finish off, around the time, 10, 20 years before um, our work is being produced, Leonardo is exploring the golden section with his Vitruvian um, man that we see here and experimenting with flying machines for court pageants with his famous mirror writing as a cloaking device, writing back to front. And here we've got Christopher Columbus writing his notes in Latin in the margins of an early printed version of the travels of Marco Polo, with this little maniculum, the pointing hand, being the uh, forerunner of the Nota Bene mark in the margins. So it really sort of situates it, doesn't it, in that sort of personal world of exploration and pushing of frontiers in this world as well as in the next And here, 1490s from Lisbon, you've got Bartolomeo and Christopher Columbus's um, Portland chart that's produced of um, the coast of Africa and of Europe. And, of course, they're projecting their exploratory voyages across the Atlantic. And again, around the same time, Polish astronomer and mathematician Copernicus is beginning his experiments in Bologna to prove that the sun, rather than the earth, lay at the centre of the universe and was about to be condemned as a heretic for his labours. And the world of manuscripts, grotesques, importing into the world of panel painting with the wonderful Bosch um, Garden of Earthly Delights painted around our time in the South Netherlands where you've got this wonderful abuse of all of the delights of nature and all of the pleasures given to us. Look at the young couple in their bubble where everything seems wonderful in that first flush of romance, but it's going to be a long eternity trapped in that bubble together when it goes horribly wrong, as we'll see in the next <laughs> part of the triptych. And here you can see this also almost Python-esque. You can see where Terry Gilliam was getting a lot of his inspiration from here of, you know, what happens. And this sort of almost apocalyptic World War II vision 
of what happens if you abuse the garden of earthly delights and all of our medieval grotesque creatures, this little mouse, onion creature eating a human leg down the bottom here, etc. Meanwhile, Henry VIII is busy commissioning beautiful manuscripts, and here you can see the marguerite and the marigold and the rose and the rose of Lancaster and York growing up to form the combined Tudor rose as the new dynasty takes over in the aftermath of the Battle of Bosworth with the Welsh Tudor dragon as well as the um, English lion, etc. This was produced to celebrate the marriage of his sister to the King of France and also contains some of the beautiful motets. This is the rose motet, including some compositions by Henry himself. And, of course, the natives are getting restless. This is a Wycliffe Bible for Thomas of Woodstock. Not only ordinary people, but members of the nobility were wanting access to scripture in their own language. And, of course, the Lollards pinned their demands for reform on the doors of St Paul's Cathedral in London way before Luther did the same with his 96 theses. And, of course, that led directly into Martin Luther's work, who anointed the Protestant Reformation with his 96 theses in 1517. And that, of course, would lead to the Tyndale Bible being printed in Worms in English in 1526 and being burnt in the churchyard of St Paul's when it was brought into London. Ironically enough, within 20 years, St Paul's was the first church to have an English-language Bible readily available for consultation by the public. Um, And so the thing turns. Uh, Portraiture. Holbein's stunning 1523 portrait of the Dutch humanist priest Erasmus, who in the midst of the horrors of the Reformation charted a very sane and humane middle course based on both his religious faith and on his um, absorption of humanism and the classics um, in which uh, you would have something that would lead into Elizabeth I's famous quote about I do not wish to create windows into men's souls. Um, And again, you can see with the classical architecture here and the Greek on the foredge of the book symbolising his scholarly um, pursuits and inclinations. And here another one who thought he had scholarly pursuits and inclinations. This is Henry VIII's personal psalter in which he has the chutzpah to have himself depicted as King David, as a musician as ever, with the fool says in his heart there is no God. And this is um, a portrait from life of Henry's own court um, fool and harshest critic, um, Will Sommers. So the tradition of illumination carrying on well into the print era. And just to end with, this is a beautiful manuscript portrait of Simon Benning one of our lead artists in the Rothschild prayer book, painting an image of the Virgin and Child, like St. Luke, who painted them from life in the Byzantine icon tradition with his eyeglasses, etc., and his very lined brow and eyes, because he's 75 now, painting himself and still working in 1558. But the line continues. Here we've got one of the most beautiful early images of Queen Elizabeth I of England, painted by Lavina Terlink, who was one of Simon Benning's six daughters, many of whom went into the trade. 